Welcome to this episode of the Hamilton Review of Books podcast. On today's episode, we are going to talk about translated literature. In recent years, the market for books in translation has grown, and awards like the International Booker Prize have brought heightened attention to works not written in English. So it felt appropriate to dig a little deeper into why this has happened, what we get from reading works in translation, and what the art of translating is all about. Our guest today is Barbara Halla. Barbara is the criticism editor for Asymptote Journal and a contributing editor for Reading and Translation, two online magazines publishing and reviewing literature in English translation. She works also as a researcher focusing on writings of contemporary and classic Albanian women authors. In addition to interviewing Barbara, we're going to talk about Fernanda Melkor's upcoming novella, Paradise, her follow-up to the stunning hurricane season. So let's get started. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our episode here of the Hamilton Review of Books. You are the first international guest. We usually have uh, local guests because we try to highlight um, authors and readers in our geographic area. Where, just so you know, like Hamilton is a, a sizable city that's about a forty-minute uh, drive from Toronto. Uh, so it's it's smaller. It doesn't have a, as big of a literary community. So we have to, and we don't have access to the same kind of media possibilities that Toronto authors do. So we really try to highlight that. But uh, when we were brainstorming ideas about episodes, and we were thinking about translated literature, uh, the first person that came to mind was you because you talk so passionately about it on Twitter. And for for, for people listening, uh, Barbara and I, I guess, have been Twitter friends for like a while now, probably several years. Uh, so it's 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 fun to actually see someone and talk to them in, in real life, or at least, you know, more so than through the medium of Twitter. So it's great to to finally meet you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Alex. As I mentioned to you by email, this is the first time I'm doing one of these. So I'm sorry if I sound awkward or um, I don't know if like I mumble my speech. But uh, yeah, well, I'm excited to be your first international guest. Um, no, and- I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> um, I know I, I can't I can't not acknowledge that obviously we're recording in the context of Russia invading Ukraine and it's uh, it's probably a, a disorienting time for for everyone obviously the tragedy that's going on then how do you how do you handle reading during times like this are you someone who gets so stressed or concerned or worried that you can't read or do you to look to books to escape It's interesting right because I um I don't know if we'll, this will defeat the purpose of you know you having a book podcast but I am not the kind of person when things like this happen, I tend to find I, I continue reading uh, mostly because I have to do it for work. So I can't really escape it. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, I'm not the kind of person who finds it easy in the moment to think of art as something that can help me. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think art is very useful and reading and books are very useful. And I think they have an important place in uh, helping us understand a moment or, um, you know, helping us understand world events um, or human nature or what have you. But in the moment, um, I don't know why, but I have this reaction where I'm like, I, I cannot do when people talk about the importance of art, say on Twitter, 
Um, you know, everyone has their own way of dealing with stressful situations and conflict. And, yeah. you know, that's definitely, you know, to each their own. But to me, it's more of a, uh, I, I, I don't find it necessarily relaxing, so I don't turn to books. But I am reading because I have to more than anything else. For work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is... I think that's a, that's a normal response. I think it's one of several normal responses is to turn away from leisure activities when the world feels so unleisurely it's it's a tough situation right because i um i mean we mentioned this being on twitter and you know i can't it's become a normal part of my life um this being online and i don't think of my online life to so to see so to speak i don't think of it as separate from my real life um i think we have to come to terms with the fact that our online life is very much real um and, you know, I, I try to avoid just being on Twitter because I think people have this tendency to uh, act as if they know what's happening or if they have, like, solutions. And I'm just like, I, you know, I'm, it's to me it's very hard because I think I don't have the solution. I feel like I don't have any power. So I, I'm not quite sure, um, like, what's the right approach. <laughs> it's not nice feeling powerless. And I think sometimes in online spaces that feeling of powerlessness... Um, can make us behave perhaps not in the most selfless ways <laughs> um, because we want to, you know, wrestle back some of that power and we, I think, sort of leash out to people who don't necessarily deserve it. Um, no, for sure. I think there can be a lot of, uh, you know, with all the positive elements of, you know, online connections uh, with people around the world, there is that, you know, it's so easy to be harsh to not be patient, to not be generous, not let people make mistakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's e very easy to put your to get your back against the wall mm -hmm. and just any nuance is a is a thing that is often lacking, especially on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sorry because we're deviating I think from what this was supposed to be, but I don't remember who said this. I think it was a YouTube video essay um it was talking about, I guess, people, um, I don't like the term cancel, cancel culture because, I mean, it's just, it's become one of those things now nowadays. But he, he was saying essentially that because workers have been stripped of their power, now this is the only power we feel we have, like just going after people online <laughs> for minor infractions. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, for sure. It's our, you know, and I, and I get that, right? You know, the, if, you know, the, the, there's a famous quote that power corrupts, but a friend of mine commented that in fact it's it's powerlessness yeah. that mm -hmm. often corrupts. Exactly. Um, but yes. back to the topic <laughs> at hand with world events, I think you know translated literature mm -hmm. and the idea of translated literature and the the importance of it actually mm -hmm. uh, has has more resonance, I think. Uh, and so I think, you know, obviously I, I did not schedule uh, this uh, topic mm -hmm. thinking that we would be in the midst of a, a war in, in the Ukraine, uh, but uh, it's it's nonetheless topical. Um, so let's chat about translated mm -hmm. literature because why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your relationship with translated literature you it's obviously a part of your your work that you do can you tell us a little yes bit about of course that? so for um i have been working for asymptote journal for the past five years now which sounds ridiculous i mean time has passed so fast <laughs> um so asymptote journal is we are an online uh, magazine that publishes fiction and english translation we publish reviews 
Um, we publish criticism, essays, uh, but the core of our work is essentially publishing short stories, poems, pieces of nonfiction um, that are translated from as many languages, as many regions of the world. Um, I myself am currently the criticism editor, uh, which means that I basically commission and edit uh, reviews of translated literature. Um, and this is sort of my current main thing that I do um, in the realm of translated literature. Um, I have done some translation myself, but I'm not quite sure that I have the temperament to be a translator um, or the talent, let's say. Um, I, 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 and with regards, I guess, to my relationship to translated literature in general, I have a bit of a... Um, I guess an interesting story with it, seeing that I am not a native English speaker or I'm not from the Anglophone world. I was born and raised in Albania. I did my college years in the US and then lived in France. Um, so to me, it's interesting in a sense because I grew up with translated literature, but it wasn't defined as such to me. To me, it was just literature because you know, Albanian literature is not particularly, um, we're a small country, <laughs> there aren't as many authors, and, you know, when you're a small country, I guess you always tend to look outside. Um, were you were you reading uh, English work that had been translated into Albanian? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, um, I am a bit wary of this particular example because of the nature of the author's <laughs> um, uh, attitude, uh, in the last few years, but I grew up reading Harry Potter translated in Albanian. That was a huge part of my life, um, as it was for a lot of people. So I think in a way, you know, that sort of connects you, uh, sort of like the power of translated fiction to connect you with the rest of the world. Uh, cliches. You have uh, you have nothing to be ashamed of. My dog's name is Dobby, um, and and Dobby's a girl, and obviously the the character is a, a, a male in in the book. So I find it it's ironic and kind of it's it was an unintentional slight at uh, Rowling's transphobia. So yes, I also grew up. <laughs> I was a little older. I was an adult as I started reading Harry Potter. Yeah. But I mean, still, my yeah. mom is also a huge fan of the books. She read them with me as they were published, and I have just so many memories of you know them getting published and we bought buying them and just you know it, it's sad to have that much happiness um and a sense of community sort of tainted um yeah, yeah no, so it's it's, uh, it's really sad especially what the books have meant for the queer community i think uh, who have often seen themselves in someone like harry who was an outcast so yeah yeah no, absolutely yeah you see that that's something you do see on twitter is the the hurt yeah. I think people feel, mm -hmm. uh, especially folks that have uh, have come out as trans later on and saying that Harry Potter was important in terms of coming to terms with mm -hmm. who they were and liberating them from from concerns about coming yeah. out and then to have Rowling be so mm -hmm. vicious yeah. uh, towards their choices. It's it's, it's yeah. I mean, sad. it is really sad to have that much power in so many different ways and to choose to use it this way against a community who is deeply marginalized and I I will never understand it and to me you know it's I will cherish those memories but I am trying to no longer support her financially I guess yeah I can't go to the movies anymore oh no it's, uh, no yeah besides Rowling is was what kind of access what other kinds of books like Rowling is huge right it's obviously she gets published 
everywhere, but did you have access to other texts and, and, and whatnot yes. as a kid growing up? Yeah, so it's interesting, I guess, because um, one thing that I realized perhaps a bit late is that we didn't read a lot of um, English language literature translated in Albanian. Our sort of points of references, when, when I was growing up, I used to read a lot of um, adapted Greek mythology that was my jam, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, we read a lot of French, Russian, Italian authors. Um, those were sort of like the main cultural references. Uh, and growing up, what I remember was basically reading these adapted novels from the classics. Um, I really, really loved this adaptation of Alexandre Dumas' uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, um, yeah, I remember reading adaptations of like Oliver Twist, um, The Hunchback, of, I mean, it's not The Hunchback of Notre Dame, it's more, it's, uh, what's it called, the actual title? <laughs> I forget it now because Disney has colonized Notre my Dame? mind. No, no, yeah, Notre Dame, no, yeah, Notre Dame, I think, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so as a kid, I remember reading these um, adapted novels who were short for children uh, from the classics, um, and these were some of my favorites. Um Especially the Count of Monte Cristo, I was a bit, I was big on revenge <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> you know, I I grew up like my parents were uh, immigrants from Chile, and so my so English was not their first language. Although my my father did um, go to school in the United States, so he had a little more his English was was better. But both of them ended up reading in English, and so I didn't actually get that much exposure growing up to translated literature even like spanish books and 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 mm -hmm. stuff like that never they they just pretty much just uh said you know he you know i, I just got the whatever normal kids re read in in canada which is usually just english language so it's i feel lost that i lost something <laughs> because of that and uh, so discovering some amazing chilean authors for mm -hmm. example uh in recent years or latin american authors in recent years mm -hmm. has been very uh affirming in terms of like my own identity as, as a latino and whatnot mm -hmm. yeah of course and i think even for me when i think about it we had um, growing up, not necessarily as a child, but more as a teenager in high school, we did read like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende, but those were sort of, um, I mean, Borges is also very big in Albania, um, but those were sort of like the three authors from Latin America, and, um, you know, it's usually, even my own education with translated literature was definitely very Europe, Euro, Eurocentric, and definitely very, you know, Germany, Russia, France, a little bit of Italy. Um, but yeah, those were sort of um, my main refer literary references in general. Um, while the rest of the world, including the US to a certain extent, was a bit of a mystery to me from a literary point of view. There is many American classics that I have never read. <laughs> no, no, for sure. Yeah, I, and I'm, I definitely lack... Uh, a grounding in classics that I discovered. I know like there's been this wave of like, you know, you talk about your love of these Greek mythologies. It's like I never had that exposure growing up. So when I read Circe's or mm -hmm. uh, what's Miller's other book, uh, The Songs of Achilles. Um, Achilles, yeah, yeah. It's like I, I didn't like it's it's all it's new to me the storyline i vaguely have some <laughs> idea of the of the the storyline that it's mm -hmm. based on but for me it's all fresh so it's a very different experience and i think someone who's grown up uh in, enmeshed in that uh 
in that literary tradition. So what do you think has, has happened in recent years? Because there's been a huge increase in popularity of translated literature. Obviously, the most the most significant would be probably Ferrante. And I know you're a huge fan of her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think, uh, w- what's been going on? Why do you think there's been this, this appetite for translated literature? I really, I wish I had a proper answer to this because I'm thinking now, um, I sort of joined Asymptote right when, and sort of the translated literary community, which I think mostly happens online through spaces like Twitter, Goodreads to a certain extent. Um, there is this one group, Muxi. Oh, is that how it's pronounced? I don't know. <laughs> but, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. they are on Goodreads. So I think those are like the two main spaces that I think of as... Um, I know there are many, yeah, there are many others, I think, on Reddit. And there is another like word literature forum that I was never on. Um, but yeah, I sorry, this is a bit of a digression, but... I I really don't know. I wonder in a sense if maybe something that could have happened is the fact that the Booker International changed format in 2016. Yeah, yeah. No, it used to be for like any non-Commonwealth writer and then they switched it to translated, yeah. Yeah, and it used to be that they would give a... Like it was more like the Nobel, Nobel, which was was a, you know, a career prize. Um, whereas in 2016, they changed it to resemble the English language booker. And, um, I think that might have had something to do with it because that's sort of when I think things started to change with, uh, you know, um, Hong Kong and Deborah Smith winning for the vegetarian. Yeah. Um, great book. Yeah. I, I mean, I know I loved it. And I remember I actually, sorry, is, is okay if I tell a short story? No, go episode? ahead. This, yeah. I, I try to keep it conversational. So go yeah, ahead. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, yeah. So um, I actually sort of how I got into this whole thing was I was a huge fan of Ferranta even in 2016. And she was uh, long listed for the very first iteration of the new booker. Um, and they had an event with some of the judges and Fiametta Rocco, who is the manager of the prize, and she's a cultural editor at The Economist. So they had an event at the um, um, Shakespeare bookstore in Paris. Yeah. And um, that was a very fun event. Like the judges talked a bit about the books. And I remember leaving that meeting, leaving that uh, that event with the sense that it, it was going to be the vegetarian and it was the vegetarian. So Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you just tell by how the the judges were uh, being brave? Yeah, Yeah, it was very obvious, I think, at the time. Someone told me, I think last year during the readings for the Women's Prize, that they could tell because Bernadine Evaristo, who who chaired the Women's Prize last year, or the jury, was heaping so much praise on... um, Piranesi? Piranesi, that that it was that everyone knew what was coming. A great winner, too, but still. Yeah, I know. Interesting. Interesting because I love Piranesi and I was so happy he won, but I didn't think he was going to win because I think of the women's prize as having a um, particular identity as a prize. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily fair, but, but I. But the I just, Song of Achilles won before, so they've been yeah, edgier at home, times. Yeah. And I think Home Fire too by Camila Shamsi, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, which is how they started getting this like. Um, I think this reputation for liking retellings of Greek mythology. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so Ferrante, <laughs> tell me, because 
she's obviously the superstar in translated mm-hmm. literature. Her work has been read by, I don't even know how many millions of copies of her, her yeah. the series has sold. And it's turned into an HBO series, and mm-hmm. uh, which they thankfully kept in Italian. So wh- what do you think about the story she tells that has resonated so much beyond the Italian reading community? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I wonder if perhaps it's the fact that a lot of readers of especially contemporary fiction by women are women. Yeah. And, you know, you see this books um, with My Brilliant Friend, which is translated by Anne Goldstein, like all her other works. Um, you know, it centers to women and have they have this complicated relationship. Um, and I think in a way it resonates because I don't think Ferranta meant it as such necessarily, but it resonates because it has a bit of this, like, you know, the competition, the striving to... Um, you know, like going from being poor to being sort of su- successful in successful in a in a particular framing of what it means to be successful, right? Because mm. uh, you have this character going from like this story of upward mobility, of I guess class warfare in a in a, in a sense, yeah. uh, strong female friendship. There is romance, and I think Ferranta herself, she's very aware of how she uses tropes and I guess the tropes of genre fiction to hook her reader in. Yeah, And I think it's all these different elements that she plays with so beautifully that uh, I think at the end of the day, it's it's an interesting story. It reads very well. It's very passionate. And I think people want something that, you know, they can read and enjoy reading. Um, And she's a great storyteller. Yes. Um, Yeah. It's it's not a chore to read her work. Exactly. And I think it's also... um, Maybe perhaps for the American reader a little bit more, there's this whole idea of like this relationship they maybe have to Italy. Um, perhaps it does play into some sort of like imaginary or imagination of like what it means to live in Italy or like grow up there. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm just spitballing here. I'm not 100% sure. My mom loves Ferrante and I, I, I... I, one of the reasons, obviously, is because she's of the generation that the characters are uh, in terms of, you know, the coming to, of age in the 50s, 60s and 70s and the, the changes that are happening among the lives of women in her society and the, the barriers mm-hmm. that, that they were confronting as they begin to challenge the expectations that their families had of them and, mm-hmm. and exploring new opportunities. And so I when I read them, and I, I have to say I wasn't crazy about the first book mm-hmm. my brilliant friend about i love the second and the third so anyways the the kinds of struggles that are described in the book are things that she very much identified with and i'm curious oh, in terms of that generation whether or not mm-hmm. it was something they also who the readers of that generation really identify in ferrante's work definitely i think that's something that happened with my mom as well and also it's funny that you say that about the first book because i remember i liked the first book in the quartet but it took me forever to read. It took me like a couple of weeks. And so I completely like I sympathize. I um, I'm a big fan of Ferrante, but you know, I also reading is such a personal thing and very subjective. But I remember I read the first one, it took me a couple of weeks, and then the rest of them I just devoured. <laughs> I I couldn't I we had like such a busy week at work and I was there like reading till three in the morning and then coming back to work and working too late and then going back to sleep like very late because I couldn't stop reading those books. <laughs> It just might be that, you know, people's lives become more interested when they're no longer young teenagers too, right? And I think the, mm-hmm. the kinds of conflicts and things that are going through in their in the characters' lives are, are more, you know, more dynamic. 
once yeah. you get older too. Yeah, definitely. I, I just think at the end of the day, um, with reading and books that become so popular, um, there's an element of storytelling. People like a good story and she taps onto in, into that um, desire for a good narrative. Um, you, you know, and it's a bit like what we were saying with things like Harry Potter. At the end of the day... I think most books that become these like blockbusters, um, they're good, they're interesting stories. So, so there's a lot of like conversation these days about the role of translators. I guess the International Booker was great because mm-hmm. it split the award between the original author and the translator. Uh, there's a campaign. I know Jennifer Croft who has translated uh, some of Olga Tokarczuk's book uh, books that she you know to get the translator's name on the cover. Uh, so, and what do you think of that? And also, what, when you're reading a book, what do you are you are you looking at the quality of the translation? Are there things that uh, catch your attention in terms of oh this was well well done in terms of capturing because obviously most of us don't read the original text we don't know how accurate it is but you know you can kind of tell if something feels uh, that it's missing something because the translation is isn't good so what are you, what are you looking for yeah so first of all I just want to express my um, you know I 100% support the idea of um, the initiative which um, Jennifer Croft has laudably, you know, brought to public attention. I mean, she and many other translators, of course, um, this idea of including the translator on the cover. Uh, the reason why you're reading that book is because a translator, I mean, you're reading the translator's words. And But Fitzcarraldo didn't do it for the Book of Jacob. I, I was know. a little disappointed. I was too. The American edition, and they did. Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, it's it's very disappointing to me, especially the Books of Jacob is such a feat of translation. It's like oh, a, no, a thousand-page book with so many references. It's like it's a historical text, and I cannot imagine the amount of research that went into translating it correct, like accurately and authentically. Um, no, it's very disappointing not to include it. And I know that there have been some discussions about the fact that um, some people say that it deters readers from purchasing a book if they see that it has been translated, um, which I don't know how much research has gone into this particular question. Um, and I can't speak to that. But also at the same time, how are you going to change things if um, you end up hiding the translator be- behind the cover? Um um, and secondly, this idea that, you know, this sort of um, this sort of activism, let's say, um, is less important than, I don't know, better pay for translators, better rights, copyrights especially. But I don't think, um, I think Jennifer makes a very good point that if you don't even have the name on the cover, how can you then um, uh, fight for these other, let's... Yeah, yeah, pitch yourself as a good yeah. translator for future work. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's like the bare minimum... And um, as, as regards to readers, I think we should give them a bit more credit, um, um, especially because I think people who go in buying books that have been translated are doing that a bit more consciously. Um, I don't think anyone's being duped into buying a translated book. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, if you're if you're picking up an yeah. Olga Tokarczuk, you know it's a translated work. In a Ferranti, you know it's a exactly. translated work. It's, you yeah, know. I think it's just... So what- mm-hmm, sorry. So what, so what do you look for when, when, oh, when yeah. you're thinking about what's a good translation? I mean, perhaps, oh God, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough question for me because I, um, I feel like I think about the translation. If it, 
if a translation is done well, perhaps it's something that I don't even consider when I'm reading a book. Um, you know, it's something that I consider then after I've read it. Um, there is, uh, it, it's a bit of a tough, it's really a tough question, right? Because it's, um, what, what does it mean to, to, to do a book well, to render a book well in English? And, uh, at the same time, are we perhaps, um, when we're judging a translation, are we perhaps using our own idea of what something is good and what has informed that idea of what it means to write good literature, um, so that's something that I'm always conscious of when I'm reading a book and I feel like, oh, I'm not sure I like this translation. And then I try to understand why, what I don't like about it. And usually it's something of a, um, when it feels, uh, is clunky the right word? Um, you know, it, it's a bit of a minefield. I think that I'm try I try to be very careful of this okay. idea of, um, um, something reading smoothly or something not feeling like a translation, because yeah. what does that even mean? Um, and if it does feel like a translation where I think of it as clunky, you know, I, um, I try to question myself about those, uh, precon preconceived notions, but, um, I, yeah, uh, I read a book recently. It's called In Concrete. It's one of the books that's um, shortlisted for or it's in the, the tournament of books. I'm not sure if you follow that, but they uh, mm -hmm. I haven't followed it for a long time. But I decided this year I could read the, the 16 or the 18 mm -hmm. finalists. And it's a French book. And I wasn't super enamored with the story, but the translation was amazing because the. It's Emma yes, Amazon. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a lot of like um, intentional uh, poor vocabulary because it's it's being told from the perspective of a, a child or a, you know someone who's who misuses words and spells words phonetically rather than how they're supposed to be spelled and so to to be able to to do that to take that how it's presented in French and then capture that in the English mm -hmm. translation I found quite impressive. It's funny you mentioned that because I I was oh you know now that you, now that you mentioned that there is something that I consider with a translation and it's something that when I try to be a translator I thought about as well which is essentially I would like for I mean there's definitely a question of like cultural context right but if I am a reader reading a book in translation what I'm hoping the translator has achieved is for me to read that book um, as much as possible the way in, uh a person would read it in its original language. Um, as I said, there's a lot of like cultural context, but it, you know, it's something like say, um, we've had this discussion in the sense about like um, italicizing foreign words or um, keeping certain phrases in a particular language, which, you know, it's, it's a difficult, com it's a nuanced conversation that can be had there. But something that I think about is um, would a person reading this in its original language, you know, how, how will how will this flow in the original language? Like, what experience are they having? I don't know if it's necessarily the right way to think about translation, but it's something I think so about. So the other uh, thing I wanted to chat about is that although there has been an increase in translated literature, aside from a few exceptions, it's been mostly Western, right? We're still, you know, it's still people in, in Europe, or I guess it's unclear whether Latin America is, is Western or not sometimes, but, you know, <laughs> No, it's it, it's still the the bulk of the market is still mm -hmm. there. Do you see any shifts the, uh, in terms of embracing non-European languages? I see a shift insofar as I think people are making more of a concentrated effort to mentor young tra young translators from 
um, non-Western languages. Um, I know that's definitely been in the minds of a lot of um, more established translators who um, do like summer schools and, you know, similar schemes. So I'm hoping that's something that will change the landscape of translated literature in the future. Then you have, you know, publishers like Tilted Access Press who only publish from Asia. Um, and especially like they focus a lot on South and Southeast Asia, which are very underrepresented. And that's something that I think it's, it's very cool. Um, and I'm hoping uh, they will set the examples for other publishers as well. But yeah, no, it's really, yeah, no, it's really, unfortunately, and I see this with the Booker International, right, every year where, um, and I know that the, the, the long list, which is usually only 13 titles, the reason I've heard it's like that is because actually the books that are being submitted are for, like, the vast majority are in, like, French and Italian and German and Spanish. So it's, it's hard, I guess, to create a long list that is more balanced when the vast majority of the books that you're being submitted are homogenous in one yeah, way or another. It's hard for, I know jury members have the right to bring books in, but yeah. like when they're already reading a hundred and some books, it's, exactly. it's probably asking too much of them. So before we, we take a break and, and move on mm-hmm. to uh, Fernanda Melkor's book, uh, if, if someone is thinking about picking up their first work in translation, where do you think is a good place to start? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Uh, because you said suggestions and I had made a <laughs> list. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Gus, I think, you know, I think it will depend on the kind of book that you're looking for. Um, if you're someone who likes an epic narrative, like Ferrante is a, I think it's a decent start. Um, you know, my brilliant friend, if you're like, if you like, like family sagas and um, that's a good one. Um, then I'm trying to think. Um, because I feel like sometimes when, uh, I feel like because of the nature of the kind of reader who, um, reads books in translation, I think publishers tend to go for like more experimental, more, let's say books that fall into like literary fiction, um, which can be an acquired taste at times. But there's also like the, 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 the <laughs> which, whole Scandinavian tradition of crime novels that I'm sure a lot of people oh, yes. have read and don't realize they've read translations. I, yes, yeah, Stig Larsson. Sure, yeah. yeah, of course. Oh, that's something that I didn't even consider. That's very true. They're be- becoming very big in Albania as well. Um, but yeah, um, something, I mean, I, I love... Olga Tokarczuk, who won the Nobel Prize, I think flights, if you're more into like atmospheric books that like think think about like human history and language and travel and borders, she's been translated, uh, flights was translated by Jennifer Croft, so that's also an option. Last last recommendation, because I don't want to like, I don't want to scare anyone off. (laughs) There's this great book by uh, Sang Young Park, a Korean author, um, called Love in the Big City. It was translated by Anton Herr. Um, it's a great queer novel about, you know, being a gay man oh, in wow, okay. Seoul. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's very moving, it's heartbreaking, and uh, it's, it's very tender as a novel. And I just, I, I loved it. I read it last year, and it was one of my favorite books of last year. It's definitely something to pick up. It's, um, it reads very fast, too. And um, yeah, I mean, if, I, it's it's a great it's a great place to start, and you would be also supporting a um, published in the UK by Tilted Axis, which we mentioned, and um, they are very affordable if you want to buy the e copy from them. 
um, which you can then use on your Kindle or any other, like they're, what's the word? They're, they're, it's, it, it's very easy to use them on whatever e-reader that well, you I'm have. Well, I'm going to include uh, links in the show notes for all of these suggestions Perfect. so people can take a look and explore yeah. what they want. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk Great. about uh, Fernanda Melkor's new book. We are now going to talk about Fernanda Melcor's new novel, Paradise. I want to thank Publishers Group Canada for supplying us an advanced reading copy. As a warning, the novel does contain depictions of sexual violence and misogyny, which we do discuss during our conversation. Hello again. So we are back to talk about Paradise or Paradise. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm Spanish speaking and I still I'm not sure how you're pronouncing it. It is the follow up uh, to hurricane season for Fernanda Melcor. Uh, Fernanda Melcor's I'm not sure if hurricane season. I think it was her first book that she had translated into English mm-hmm. and it was translated by Sophie Hughes, who also translates this and hurricane season was was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. I think both you and I had hoped it would win. Mm -hmm. It was my favorite book two years ago, and I just found it such a powerful... The prose was just incredibly powerful and moving, though difficult. And so she follows this up with this much shorter novella. So, uh, Barbara, why don't you tell us a bit about what happens? (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is much more straightforward than Hurricane Season, which had, I think, what four different intersecting perspective. Um, This one um, is essentially about um, two teenage boys who live in this um, um, urban development, I think that's what they call it. Um, A gated community. Gated community somewhere in Mexico. Um, I'm assuming in Mexico it's never specified in the book, but because... Um, Elcor is herself Mexican. I think that's implied. But yeah, so it's um, the story revolves around these two boys. It's told mostly from the perspective of of from of Polo, which is he is he works as a gardener um, and sort of like general maintenance yeah. boy, boy in this yeah. gated community. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, pool boy exactly in this gated community. Who I mean, I would use befriends, but it's not really befriends. I think they both they just hang out together. This rich kid who lives in the gated community, um, and there's just the book essentially is very short. It's more of a novella, I think, um, and revolves around the relationship between Polo and Franco. Um, it's told from the perspective of Polo, who is very angry at his lot in life and who helps. Uh, this rich boy uh, concocted a very tragic plan. Um, and it, it's a very straightforward story, and I don't want to spoil it too much. I'm assuming people won't have yeah. read it. It's not um, out in Canada until yeah. May. Yeah. Okay, yeah, great. So I think it, it's more... It's very, as I said, it's a very straightforward story about these two young men who feel marginalized, who feel left behind, and... Um, um, in both in very different ways, of course, and it's a lot about this anger of feeling like your life is not your own. 
and sort of the pressures that and the choices that you make in those situations to wrestle back control <laughs> and um yeah it's a difficult book it's very short but it's very powerful and it's very it's a bit of a tough read I would how, do you, say. how do you think it holds up to hurricane season because i think they they both kind of explore similar themes like they're very Definitely. interested like she's obviously interested in toxic masculinity and violent masculinity mm-hmm. as it exists in among mexican young men uh and and that fought, mm-hmm. that's a big element of the plot and the decisions that Franco and Polo make. So how do you think this compares in terms of quality, but also maybe a continuation of the conversation that uh, Melkor is engaged in? Yeah, it's... Um, it, it, I feel like you can definitely tell it's the same yeah. author. <laughs> and um, she... I mean, I haven't read her other books, but it, she, she, she has a style. I didn't... Um, necessarily I thought I liked Hurricane Season more maybe because I feel like with Hurricane Season as much as it was a difficult book there was a bit more tenderness in it because there were characters that you at least felt bad for and you wanted to root for Um, so I think that sort of gives you a bit of reprieve and there is a an element of uh, mystery in hurricane season so you're even though it's longer i think you are much more um you're more interested not necessarily interested but you're more invested in the plot whereas this one is shorter but it felt so much more maybe because it's it's entirely about like toxic masculinity and you have this terrible being in the minds of this i wouldn't I don't know if I should call them terrible characters necessarily, but... Uh, well, Franco yeah, is certainly a terrible ho- character. Terrible yeah, person, in, in yeah, no, that's, that's and for Polo sure. Polo seems to be someone who realizes mm-hmm. what's going on is wrong, but um, almost out but, of, like, yeah. complacency, she goes along with Franco's uh, horrible plan. Plan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting in a sense because I, I think about what you were saying, right? Because I tried to, um, I was trying in a sense to um, think about Polo and like, you know, what he's going through and like his heart, his life is hard. But at the same time, I think it's important to understand that even in terrible situations, people have agency and um, it's not necessarily that like, I don't think um, Melkor exculpates them. I think she's very aware of the fact that they are making these choices and especially like their choices I don't need to be making. Um, but yeah, as you said, complacency is a very big part of it. Um, what, what's interesting in Hurricane Season, and I, it's been a while since I read it, so I don't recall all of that. But she, she, she does like touch upon like issues of mythology within these communities. Obviously, I think the, the beginning of mm-hmm. Hurricane Season begins with the, this murder of a character who's been identified as a witch yeah. and these kinds of like uh, characteristics that have been superimposed on her by the community and that mm-hmm. lead to the to the, her tragedy or tragic outcome. And here there's less of that. It's a much more straightforward uh, story it's it's a very uh, I I wouldn't ever describe this as an easy read because obviously the like she engages in very frank depictions of violence uh, that are mm-hmm. are leave a, a bad taste in one's mouth as they should but 
it's still something that I was able because her, I found her prose to be so propulsive that it's it's yes, you can sit, read this in two sittings. I'm not as fat as a fast of a reader as you. When you joked about taking so well, long am... to read Ferrante two weeks, I was like, for a lot of people that would be a very fast uh, read. Uh, but for for I still read this in two sittings, and the, the last one was I read two thirds of the book, and that's rare for me. Uh, and and I found mm-hmm. the same thing with Hurricane Season. I I I went through it quite quickly. She writes in a style that's just once you get caught in the rhythm of it, uh, you just keep mm-hmm. on going and you don't want to stop. And it's it's very easy to get through. So in that sense, it's, it's recommended for a short mm-hmm. read. But it's also one that it comes with all this emotional baggage that you're going to be left with at the end. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you say that, you know, you found this... Um, it's true, her writing is very propulsive, and I think just the style of the text, the way she writes, is like stream of consciousness, long paragraphs without any breaks, that you're sort of forced to continue until you're yeah. done. Um, but at the same time, I found this so much more, so much harder to go through than Hurricane Season for some reason. Although it's shorter, and again, I think, in a sense, the depictions of violence here are no worse than perhaps you know i think hurricane season has a lot more violence in it by sheer by the sheer fact that it's yeah. longer and here it's just there's, there's one characters. act or one i guess it's exactly. one event really where yeah. things go awry right mm-hmm. yeah yeah but it's, it's it's true there isn't that element of like mysticism here there's a one like with the one house that sort of adds this atmosphere but no it, hurricane season is definitely more about the sort of the way people will blame anything but the actual causes of their misery. for sure. Uh, What do you think of the translation? Because Sophie Hughes has now become quite a a name for her, made quite a name for herself. Obviously, she translated this, she translated Hurricane Season. I think she translated that Chilean novel, Remainder, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So she's become a go-to in Spanish. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I find her translation partially, you know, the quality I look for, I guess, in, trans- in translation is whether uh, you can tell you're reading a translation and here you can't, at least from mm-hmm. my, 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 my sense of it. Yeah. I agree. I love her translations. They're very smooth. I mean, you're just, as, as you said, you don't realize that you're reading a translation. Um, I'm kind of curious because I was um, going through some reviews um, elsewhere, mostly like on Goodreads, I like to peruse reviews um, to see what people are saying. And it's interesting because the some of the Mexican readers were saying that, oh, we like that this book in, um, in Spanish actually uses a lot, I think, of like local, um, a local slang or local yeah. language. And um, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I would be able to tell with this book. Like, I am not British, so I don't know if there was... I didn't feel like there was any sort of, like, colloquialism that I wasn't... Well, sometimes you um, just can't translate that. And then you have to make a choice, like yeah. the ones we've talked about. Do you keep the slang in italicized or in, in, in its original version? Yeah. Or do you find other words for it? And I think Hughes chooses to find other words for it. And yes, mm-hmm. that would take away... Uh, you know, I, I come from... My parents come from a country where mm-hmm. there's a lot of colloquialism. It's like Chile's synonymous for yeah. it. So I'd imagine, you know, removing that from a text filled with it changes it. But that's also part of the art of of translation and the the, the creative ownership that translators have in terms of bringing a a text from one language to another. Absolutely. Um, I guess as from a reader's perspective, I didn't feel I lost something. But you know, very few people are going to be reading the original and the the translation to be able to compare notes like that. Exactly. 
I mean, yeah, I think she did a wonderful job. It reads very well. It's very poetic. Um, you know, I think it's... Uh, I loved her work with Jurgen Season and even with Remainder. I haven't um, read Remainder, which I totally should because it speaks to like... <laughs> I, 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 can you tell us what Remainder's about? Just say, I, I, if I never read it, so... Oh God! Yeah, it's it's a, it's a um it's by Alia Trabuco Zeran, I think it's her name. Um, I just googled it. Yeah. Yes. Um, so remainder, it's an interesting one. It's a road trip novel through Chile, and it's about these three characters, um, who are trying. If I'm remember, this was three years ago, and I remember them. I think they're trying to pick up the body of um one of their parents, who has been left. I think in Argentina, um. And they go through this like road trip and one of the characters has the ability to see dead bodies or he sees dead bodies everywhere, Um, which I think is like sort of this like the relationship also to like the dictatorship and, you know, this missing bodies. Um, It's a very interesting novel, Uh, also a dark one, (laughs) of course, but yeah, so... um, but yeah, Sophie Hughes does a wonderful job, and the book itself is very, it's very moving. It's very, again, very propulsive. It's very easy to read, despite it being like about a very difficult topic. Now, I did ask you, do you have a, a passage you'd like to read from uh, from Paradise? Yes. Are you going to bleep out? <laughs> no, no, I'll just put an explicit note on it, so it isn't a problem. Yeah. Okay, yeah. because it's... Um, this <laughs> is an... I, you, I, I think you would lose something if you were to bleep it out. It's part. It's yeah. so ingrained in, in the in Melkor's uh, yeah. work, so... Yeah, it would be very hard to... Um, it's a. It would be very hard to read. It's like every page yeah. has at least one curse <laughs> yeah, word. Right. So go ahead, give us yeah. a short little passage. Yeah, this is going to be fun with my voice. Oh, no worries. <laughs> it's yeah. a passage. It's a very short one. Um, I think it's like has some very interesting points here. But yeah, so he pulled up his trousers and ran out of the house, disheveled and sweaty and stinking of rotten fish with his botched, botched job applications in his hands, ready to beg for a job, any job. It didn't matter, any fucking job, as long as it got him out of Progresso. That was his life goal, not to better himself as his stupid mother had insisted when Polo asked her what the fuck he was supposed to write in that box. Better yourself. What a load of shit. What the fuck was it even supposed to mean? Race against yourself? Against an identical twin? You wouldn't think twice about tripping up and leaving in the dust? No, his life goal was to get the fuck out of there, earn some cash, be free, goddammit, free for once in his fucking life. Okay, so that was the passage that I chose. And, and you get a sense of the kind of like the propulsiveness and the, uh, yeah. the very, uh, you know, very vernacular kind of approach to... Uh, um, writing yeah. and with all the swearing and whatnot, I love that, mm-hmm. and I think it, it, yeah, it, it's I, a good one. Yeah. So I, it's interesting that Melkor and 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 what you talk about in terms of uh, uh, the remainder. There's a lot of confronting darkness in Latin American literature about mm-hmm. countries past and I know like obvious or present right because I think Melkor is really having uh, a conversation mm-hmm. about gendered violence in Mexico and and others are, are dealing with uh, the histories of dictatorships and violence uh, state mm-hmm. violence uh, do you have you I'm not sure how much Latin American or, or, or literature you've read but have you noticed that kind of trend Absolutely. I think it's impossible not to. Um, and I was kind of wondering in a sense, because that's definitely been my experience with 
most Latin American authors that I've read in the past years. Um, and I kind of wonder if all, if it's also, because we are essentially reading these books that have been picked for us by other people, in a sense, yeah. to be translated. So um, I wonder if this is actually the nature of um, current contemporary Latin American literature uh, from like from Mexico to Argentina to Peru to Chile, wherever, or if it's maybe what we, for one reason or another, it's what publishers are choosing to publish. It's something that I do question. Yeah, it's hard to tell if this is a conversation that's going on beyond the those who are interested yeah. in literary fiction. And yeah, because I, I think in a sense, I don't know too much about the workings um, necessarily of like what, how a publishing house decides to, um, how a publisher decides to pick up a book to publish. But I'm assuming there's something going on there about like what people have liked in the past yeah. and hopefully what they might enjoy in the future, like books that are similar. So that might influence what books get picked. But at the same time, I think if there are enough authors for us to notice a trend, that trend might be it there. It is, yeah. And, and I think it's happening yeah. beyond literary fiction because I, um, I recently saw Almodovar's new film, Parallel Mothers. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you've had a chance to see it yet. No, I and, haven't yet, but I've heard great things. And he's obviously like, he's the, the biggest director in Spain probably mm-hmm. at least I guess we don't know but we think it's internationally he is. Yeah. but uh, one of the subplots is there is confronting the past the the civil war and the deaths mm-hmm. and that there's some very difficult conversations happening in Spain right now uh, where there's yeah. this reticent to do so and that's part of the theme that's explored in the movie and it wasn't selected as Spain's uh, ad- uh movie to submit to Mm -hmm. the academy awards and there's some suspicion that it might have to do with this some sections of society not wanting to have this conversation Mm -hmm. and you know artists are great about forcing conversations onto the table uh when they need to be had so it's uh yeah no i was just thinking in terms of like the this idea of confronting the past it does feel like a conversation that's being had pretty much everywhere um, I see it in Albania all the time with communism. We're seeing it right now in the U.S. with like the fight against uh, the censorship against critical race theory yeah. and confronting America's racist past and present. Yeah, um, yeah so it's, um, it's a reckoning that seems to be going on yeah. everywhere. And I think art does play a role in, in that reckoning and how we, yeah. we have a conversation about it beyond just, you know, those who rush mm-hmm. to deal with these things immediately so on that dark note <laughs> we'll we'll begin to wrap up uh, i want to thank you so much barbara for joining us uh it's been a, a great discussion and uh it'll be up probably within the next week and a half and mm-hmm. i will be sharing it with all our twitter friends so they'll get to hear you uh, <laughs> even if you don't want to <laughs> hear it again but i think it's an important conversation uh and i yeah. think uh more and mm-hmm. more people are uh attracted to translated literature so hopefully we'll get a few more uh people on board yeah. that train yeah and i think you know uh with translated literature is that it's a bit like with any other type of art one book doesn't represent everything and if you didn't like one book in translation i think the important thing is to look for something that's yeah that's more your style um thankfully like europa editions are translating more um they've translated i'm sorry one last recommendation yeah, <laughs> yeah they've translated a winter's promise by christelle dabos translated by hildegard Sarin. Yeah. 
And uh, A Winter's Promise is actually a fantasy book. Oh, fantastic, so yeah. um, it's meant more like YA, young adult. Um, so it's written for that to audience, but it's definitely something that anyone can pick up. I loved it. I read it last year. Okay. It's a series of books. Um, so I'm just thinking like, you know, li- translated literature doesn't have to be something that's thought of as, you know, I don't know, pretentious or inaccessible. There's, or too I mean, serious or too lit- dark. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of different, exactly. uh, different kinds there's of books. There's a lot of like, yeah. f- exactly. There's a lot of like fun books. It's not all darkness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is, there is definitely books there too. As I mentioned, Love in the Big City it's it's a very tender book i think that um if you're like if you like things that are a bit more romantic or more youthful perhaps it's uh, it's a great book to to pick up so just find your um figure out i mean if you have a particular taste a particular book i can assure you that there are fiction there's fiction in translation that fits that taste okay thank you so much yeah thank you for for having me (laughs) 